One day, I visited a father and his little child in the hospital. The child was very, very ill and had some extremely difficult days ahead. Now, the the little child, the little boy, his dad was holding him in his arms when the father's own dad, there's a lot of his dad's there, isn't there? But the the young dad is holding the little boy, right, in his arms when his his own dad walked into the uh, hospital room. And the young father holding the child handed over uh, the, the child into his father's arms and he said to his little boy as he was handing him over, it's okay now, love. You're okay now. Your granddad's here. That struck me as a really odd thing to say. The little boy was very ill and had difficult surgery ahead. How did the granddad being there actually make him ensure that he was in some way okay. Now, there's actually more to that story, but I want to leave it. We'll come back to it at the end. And I want to tell you another story um, from a lot longer ago than that one, but still a true story as well. It's um, a story about Jesus. He just had a meal with his closest friends and he told them over dinner as he'd been warning them for some time now that, it, that he was about to be killed and that the time for that coming was very, very close. And I want to read you the version of the story that Mark tells. So Mark is one of the people that wrote the story of Jesus' life. Let's pick it up um, in Mark's story at Mark chapter 14. He says this, they, that's Jesus and his friends, they went to the olive grove called Gethsemane and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. He took along a little further some of his closer friends, Peter, James and John, he took them with him and he became deeply troubled and distressed. Distress. I think that's a word we've probably overused and uh, t- to some extent taken away some of the power of that word. We do that, I think, with a lot of words. So we- we've made it into something a lot more palatable. So I can be quite distressed when my favourite Netflix series finishes and I can't see anywhere on the internet when, it's- when the next one's coming out. It's distressing when you go to the fridge and pull out the chocolate wrapper and find it's just that, a wrapper. Who does that? No, no. <laughs> But the Greek word for distress that's used in this story, it's actually it's a, it's a very confronting word. It, it's, it actually suggests the greatest possible horror and suffering. It suggests intense psychological anguish and the sort of pain that brings a person literally to their knees. The sort of pain that makes a person just fall to their knees. It's anguish that finds expression in alarming sobbing and in actual physical pain. Have you ever felt distress like that? Many of you have, I know. Some of you feel that now in this space. It's the sort of distress that leaves you gasping and pacing and clawing, desperate to find an out from the situation you are in, but unable to see one at all. That's distress. Jesus became deeply troubled and distressed. It's not a pretty, pretty thing. And he said to his friends, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. In other words, he was saying, I feel so bad right now, I could die. 
keep, stay here and keep watch with me. And he went a little further and fell to the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass him by. So Jesus' response to his overwhelming distress was to pray, but I think you can see already, and we're going to see as we look on in this story, that this wasn't a neat and tidy thing. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm slightly upset. I shall go and speak to my Father God about this. It wasn't a neat and tidy prayer. Abba, Father, he cries out, Papa, Father, Daddy, Father, Papa. Daddy, Father, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. One commentator I was reading as I looked at this passage wrote, it's as if Jesus' human soul was shrinking from the suffering that lay ahead of him, shrinking from the cross. It's a, a very description. This was terrible suffering. This was horrific distress. This was real. Jesus goes on, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. But please, not what I want. What do you want? I think this is a really tough story. And perhaps you might think it's a surprising one to have chosen for Father's Day. <laughs> And even to pick to start this series, The Father Heart of God. I mean, what does this story say about the Father Heart of God? Well, the clues to all of that lie in the way that Jesus acts. And, and before we look a little more closely at that, I want to say up front and really quite quickly <laughs> that I think the very first thing that we can say is that the Father God does not expect us to go after suffering and make something noble and grand of it. Jesus' response, I believe, makes that clear. Suffering is awful. Don't go after it. Do what you can, in fact, to relieve it. If you have faith in God, then ask him for protection and relief from suffering. Pray like Jesus did. Ask with great faith, expecting God can act. For you, Father God, everything is possible. Pray like Jesus did, asking with great faith, knowing that sometimes the things we ask for won't be the things that we are given. I trust you, God. The Father God does not expect us to go after suffering and make something noble and grand of it. I want to say that very clearly up front this morning. And neither does he keep us from suffering. Which is really good on the one hand. <laughs> you know, we don't have to make a, a, an idol or a god or a heroic thing out of suffering. But you know what? To be honest, there's not a whole lot of comfort on the other hand when we realise that God won't keep us from suffering. <laughs> now there's certainly a place to talk about the why of suffering, but you know, this story is not an attempt to answer that big and important question about why God allows suffering. This story simply says that sometimes suffering is necessary. Sometimes suffering will happen. And the main fo focus of this story is about the Father's heart and how this helps us to know what to do when we are suffering 
and the suffering is not taken away. That's the focus of this story. So let me say again, suffering is not something we should make a big heroic thing out of. But sometimes suffering is necessary. Sometimes suffering will happen. So how does, how does this story help us with that? What does it teach us about what God is like as a father? Well, Jesus suffered terribly in the garden that night. And what did he do? You can have a look, of, look at it for yourselves in your Bible. We, we just read it there. Jesus suffered terribly. And you know what he did? He ran screaming out for help to his papa, his daddy, his father, his nearby father. And he fell to the ground in front of his father, knowing with all his being that his papa could make it right. He ran to the father that he knew was good. A few weeks ago, we had a family gathering at our place, and uh, it had been raining, which is hardly a surprise. I feel like it's never not been raining lately, except yesterday and today, beautiful weather for the Father's Day weekend. And everybody was over. It actually stopped raining for a little bit. Outside was ridiculously soggy. Everybody had to wear Wellington boots. You couldn't walk out there, even on the lawn. It was so bouncy with, with, the, with the water. But we were desperate, really. There were lots of little kids around, and we thought, the, sun, the rain has stopped for a bit, let's go outside, let's go outside and play. And our son was playing a game with his 16-month-old um, daughter, which involved them sort of starting at different ends of the lawn and running towards each other. And of course, when they, they got together, James probably covered more ground than Emma, he would, he would scoop little Emma up and throw her in the air and then uh, catch her again um, and, and they'd do it again and again and again. And I watched this for a while and every time that he threw Emma up in the air, within safe parameters, I assure you. <laughs> um, every time he threw Emma up in the air, her face lit up. And every time he caught her in his arms, she squealed like only a 16-month-old can with delight, gave him kind of a little squealy hug, and then she wiggled down and ran off to the other end of the lawn because she wanted to go again. This happened over a, a number of times. And our son turned to the rest of the adults, we were standing watching that, and he said this. He said, it must be nice to feel that safe. It must be nice to feel that safe. Jesus felt that safe. Jesus knew his father had no evil intentions towards him. He knew his father was good and completely trustworthy. So much so that even though he knew his father had all the power in the world, and even though he begged his father, he begged him to, to make it to save him, you know, from having to go to the Roman cross, he was ready to face whatever his father asked him to do. In that suffering space, Jesus trusted his father. And, you know, he trusted him not because he had absolute power and absolute knowledge, although Jesus believed that about his father. They weren't the things that kind of tipped him into trust, the fact that he was all-powerful and knew all things. He trusted his father because he knew him to be absolutely good. That's why he trusted him. And you see, if God is good, then you and I can feel safe like a small child being thrown into the air and caught again in her daddy's arms. If God is good. 
Now, Jesus knew a lot about God's goodness. And there's a very famous prayer from the Bible called the Lord's Prayer, which is a great summary, when you look at it, of God's goodness. So Jesus knew about God's goodness, and he'd experienced it personally, and he really wanted to teach it to people while he was here on this earth. And he did it through the Lord's Prayer. And hopefully, as you came in, you got a handout. If not, you can grab one on the way out. It outlines the Lord's Prayer and the way it teaches us about God's goodness. Take it home and have a look, have a read, have a think through that in the week. So the Lord's Prayer, that's a great way of learning about God's goodness. And of course, there are many stories that Jesus tells and many stories that other people tell about Jesus that also point to the goodness of God. But you know, there's one outstanding story that takes us to the goodness of God. And we're already partway through it. We've celebrated it actually already this morning. And we're partway through it in the story that I've started telling you about Jesus praying in great distress on his way to the Roman cross. I don't know if you're like me at all, but I must admit, when I, even when I got to this point and was writing this, I was thinking, okay, hang on a minute here, Karen. Jesus' father doesn't rescue him from a truly horrible death, and this speaks of God's goodness? Well, yes. Many people, and it's probably safe to say Actually, most people. Except that there is a good likelihood of there being someone or something out there, not alien out there. <laughs> um, some people believe that as well, of course. But something bigger than us, something significantly different to us, something spiritual, divine, otherworldly. People from all walks of life, all cultures, all faith perspectives you can often find common ground that we've got this innate sense that there's something more. Something more that ultimately gives meaning to our lives. And while this is definitely mysterious, I want to say today that it is quite rational to think that if this is the case, and many human beings inside and outside the church, many human beings think this, it is, it is rational to think that if this is the case and something substantially different to us does exist and does define the meaning of our lives in some way, then that being may well be more than us, more powerful more knowledgeable, more just, more love, more good, which is terrible grammar, but you get my point, more. And the story of Jesus' life gives that being, that human beings instinctively have a sense of being out there, the story of Jesus' life gives that being a name, God, Father God, Abba. So it's not irrational to believe that God exists. And if God exists and is more than any of us, more powerful, more knowledgeable, more good, then it is also quite rational to believe that we can't just get access to God. If he is more than us in all those ways, it's, it's quite rational to think, you know what, I probably can't just bowl into his presence. You know, even if you and I could somehow plot our, good, our knowledge and our power and our goodness on a line, and you know, a continuum, and, and even if we could give ourselves quite high numbers, you know, good power, good knowledge, um, good goodness, it's not irrational to suppose that we might never be powerful, powerful, knowledgeable and good enough to get to where God is. In fact, I'm pretty sure we wouldn't be on the same line. 
When God, you know, God's goodness, God's knowledge, God's uh, power would be on a whole different continuum to us. It's not irrational to suppose that we'd never be able to be powerful, knowledgeable or good enough to get to where God is. It's not irrational to say that our own goodness will never be adequate. And if you take that on a little bit, it's not irrational to say that to front up to the perfectly good God on the virtue of our own goodness is actually deeply disrespectful. Deeply disrespectful. Offensive, disgraceful. It's just not okay to bring our own shabby goodness into the presence of the mysterious other being we call God and expect him to shrug it off because we say, well, you love us, prove it. We don't do that to each other. We are not comfortable when we disrespect each other. We call that out. We want to act into that space. But we can go into the presence of the almighty God and say, well, look, shrug your shoulders, overlook it. Aren't you all-powerful? Don't you love us? We wouldn't do it to our friends. But we find ourselves sometimes in that situation where we want to do it to God. Let disrespect go unchallenged. We want to rock up to God in our shabby goodness and expect him just to let it go. Shrug his shoulders just to prove that he loves us. You know what? I think we Aussies, we're not the only ones, but we Aussies really, really struggle with this. There's a, a, a great... Um, um, cultural tool that I, you can use. It's called the Hofsted, H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E, -E, the Hofsted Cultural Compass, done by this massive big com company. It's got lots of integrity to it. And they, they measure um, cultural values in cultures from all over the world. You can Google it and find out a lot of really great information. And according to this cultural assessment a tool, Australians are at very high levels, some of the highest in the world and closest to the highest possible scores when it comes to two things. Valuing individualism. So we say, yeah, valuing individualism, putting high value on being um, all about the individual and the individual's needs. And along with that, we have a high score on our right to personally indulge in the things that make us happy, comfortable, feel better about ourselves, we get a high score on that one as well. I heard someone describe that, that high score on the um, personal indulgence or personal comfort as, you know, small gods of comfort. So that was a good description. And this preoccupation with the rights of the individual and especially our individual rights to comfort means, I believe, that we are culturally primed to disbelieve the thought that I can't be good enough on my own and that somebody else can tell me I'm not good enough. Really? <laughs> that offends us. It offends us inside the church and outside the church. It really does. And you know, individualism and personal indulgence are treated by many as if they were core human characteristics and rights. And I want to say today they are not. They are cultural constructs culturally determined values that, yes, are very powerful and persuasive, but I want to say to you who believe or are wanting to believe, those cultural constructs are powerful. That's certainly no doubt about that, but they are, do not make it irrational or naive to believe that we are not okay to walk into the presence of God. 
culture might tell you, yeah, you're fine. Nobody needs to tell you what to do about yourself. And that's powerful, but it's not irrational to say, you know what? I disagree with that. I can see that as a cultural construct. I am not okay to walk into the presence of God who gives meaning to our lives. And, you know, I can even hear now some people saying, I say it myself at times, you can't tell me I'm not good enough. I can't tell you you're not good enough. And I can't. <laughs> and I'm sorry if I ever have. But you know what? God can. God can tell me that. God can tell you that. God can. Only he did something about it for us. So he's not finger pointing or grenade throwing. You're not good enough. He did something about it for us. And that's what the cross is all about. An all-powerful, all-knowing and completely good God making things right because he loves us so much. That is how good God is. That's how good he is. God is so good that he came to us and became like us so he could deal with our insufficient goodness for us. Jesus' father didn't rescue him from a truly horrible death. And Jesus himself, as Josh pointed out earlier in communion, he didn't run away from the cross. And I want to say this morning that more than anything, this is how we know God is good and can be trusted. That's how we know God is good and can be trusted. He loves us more than anyone else will ever love us. God has proved his love. Jesus has proved God's love. A guy called James Brian Smith, who's written a lot on this, says... Love that has been proved can be trusted. Love that has been proved can be trusted. Think about that for a minute. I'm going to invite the band back to the platform and then I want to pick up that story we started with. Love that has been proved can be trusted. Thanks, guys. Now, you remember that young father in the hospital, that the story that I started the message with today? He handed over the child to the child's granddad and said, it's okay, little one, your granddad is here, you are okay now. And I said to you, I thought to myself at the time, what an odd thing to say. It felt like it had a whole pile of pressure and mis misunderstandings associated with it. What an odd thing to say. But later after some conversation and reflection, I realised it wasn't actually that odd. You see, think about it like this. The young dad had known his father, always known his father to be a good man, not a perfect man, he was a human being, but he was one of the good dads that we talked about this morning. His father had been present with him as he was growing. He protected him, sometimes from himself and sometimes from other people. Uh, he, he, dad, his dad had provided food and clothes and a safe home and other things that the young man had needed to thrive as he was growing up. And his dad had always been quick to forgive him when he had messed up. So this young father knew that his own dad was good and he trusted him. But he wasn't silly. <laughs> and he also knew that his own very human father couldn't promise the little boy the future they both wanted for him any more than he could himself. 
but his dad had proved his goodness and his love. And so the young man trusted his dad to show up and act in his and his son's best interest that day in the hospital and for as many days as to come as he was needed. And because he was sure that, he, that his dad was good and present and trustworthy, he could say with great confidence and sincerity to his little son, it's okay now, love. Your granddad is here. My dad is here. He'll be with us. He loves us. Love that has been proved can be trusted. That is why Jesus could go to the cross, even though his distress very nearly crushed him. He knew his father could be trusted. Love that has been proved can be trusted. That's why you and I can face uncertain days, even though at times we feel like our very souls are being crushed because of the distress we're experiencing. Because God has proved his love for you in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. God is good and he can be trusted. And this morning I want to invite you to run to him, to cry out to him, to fall at his feet, maybe to climb into his lap and feel his arms around you. And if you are suffering, please ask God to take that suffering away. But if he doesn't, please be sure that he loves you. He is good. He is with you. And he can be trusted. He's proved that in the coming and the death and the resurrection of Jesus.